This is Get a Real Job, the podcast devoted to people who choose risk over safe bets, who pursue their passion against all odds and are doing what they want, how they want, despite people and sometimes the voices in their own heads telling them they're nuts. When the field that I wanted to work in didn't exist, I created it. The only thing you have to decide is how hard you want to work. I really never went into the design of the restaurant of not succeeding. One way or another, I was going to succeed. I'm your host, Dan Bova, Editorial Director of Entrepreneur.com. Thanks for listening. And now, get a real job. USA Today calls today's guest the biggest bargain in college football. Uh, We'll get to his eye-popping salary in a minute. Joe Moglia is the former chairman of the board at TD Ameritrade and the former head football coach of Coastal Carolina University, where he is now the executive director for football and chair of athletics. He has led financial and sports teams to incredible success and has a career path I don't think many people, if any people, share. So let's find out how he got to where he is and where he is heading. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Dan. I've been looking forward to coming on. Well, great, great to talk to you. Um, well, let's just start off. The biggest bargain in college football. How much are you pulling in these days? Well, I get the reason why it was the biggest bargain in college football when we had the cutbacks because of the COVID. I offered to give up my salary. Now, if I'm an employee of South Carolina, which I am, then I needed to still make something. So I was making a dollar. So I think they were saying at the time, you know, for a dollar, I was a pretty good bargain. I would agree with that. I'd agree with that. <laughs> That's a, that is a pretty good, you couldn't negotiate it to a dollar fifty, uh, two dollars. I tried, I tried, but they wouldn't budge. It was a tough negotiator. <laughs> That's fantastic. More coming up from our guests, but first a word from our sponsor. Everyone very, very, very excited to tell you about a workout app called Future, which I've been using for about six months. And I got to say, I genuinely love it. It is awesome. I've tried a bunch of different at-home workouts, but Future is totally different than anything I've ever used. Future provides one-on-one digital personal training and a fitness plan designed specifically for you. And it's delivered straight to your phone every week. But there's a human trainer involved too. You get hooked up with an expert coach like my trainer, Gabe, who will send me texts if I miss a session and gently suggest I get off my butt. So here's how it works. First, you select a coach. When you sign up, you get paired with the perfect coach to set and achieve your fitness goals. Then they make a plan. Uh, Your coach will create a complete training program based around your goals and schedule. And each week you'll have a new guided workout in the future app. And then it's time to sweat. Uh, you have to actually work out to get in better shape, sorry to say. But you work out as much as you want and when you want. You let your coach know which exercises you loved and what you hated, and they will continually refine it until you got something that you really, really are psyched to do. And they continue to refine it. If you don't already have one, they send you an Apple Watch so that you and your coach can track your progress, celebrate achievements, and continue to tune that routine to absolute perfection. Future is the lowest you're ever going to pay for unlimited personal training from an elite coach. Consider this, an in-person training session usually costs about $100 an hour. 
This is $150 a month, which is a pretty great deal. But an even greater deal is for the Get A Real Job listeners. You get to try your first month of Future for only $19. You get that by signing up at tryfuture.com slash real job. You get to start off for only 19 bucks a month, and I promise you, you're going to love it. Tryfuture.com slash real job. And we're back. A lot of people are familiar with uh, with you. Obviously, you've done such amazing things. But this this career journey, you know, it's one thing to sort of know it, but it's another thing when you when you sort of read the the minute by minute uh, uh, pathway. Um, it's pretty incredible. So so just for people who aren't aware, um, you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, and this was all handed to you, correct? That's exactly right. I couldn't have been. It could not have been. I could not have had an easier path than the paths I had. <laughs> no, that is not at all uh, true. Um, can you kind of give people uh, the maybe not so typical path that you've been on? I'd be happy to, Dan. And you know, all the the public stuff. You know, we can go over some other time. But um, my dad was an Italian immigrant. He came over here when he was eleven. He couldn't speak English when he came over. Never finished eighth grade, sold bananas and apples in the Bronx. I was born and raised in New York City. Uh, my mom was an Irish immigrant. She came over to marry my dad. She never finished 10th grade. I was the oldest of five. And the seven of us live in a two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment in the Dyke Mystery section of New York, which, which was a gang area at the time. There's still a piece of it that's got that, but it's been gentrified over the span of the last couple of decades. Um, uh, I mean, I was part of a gang from the time I was 10, two of my very best friends in grammar school. I was with these guys every day. They got killed in high school. Mm-hmm. One died of a drug overdose. The other was killed by the police robbing the liquor store. If I had not been playing football or Fordham prep, I have no doubt I would have been with the guy robbing the liquor store. Wow. And my goal ultimately was to play football and baseball in college, but ultimately I became a father. And, mm-hmm. um, that meant I had to give up sports. In fact, my dad suggested I shouldn't go to college at all. And I should just simply work with him full time in the food store. And then, you know, we'd have two food stores and maybe three food stores. Right. But I really felt I needed to go to college. And dad actually said, son, you're making a mistake. Mm. Uh, so I wound up, uh, I wound up Fordham University. I was uh, driving a yellow cab in New York. I was driving a truck for the post office. I was working in my father's food store, paying every dime my education and supporting my wife and daughter. You can well imagine that may not have been the most fun a college yeah. freshman yeah. ever had in the history of college freshmen. <laughs> uh, but it's also the first year I didn't have sports. So Fordham Prep was on the campus of Fordham University where I was going. and They offered me a coaching job. Uh, so my sophomore, junior, senior year, I coached high school ball during the season and I worked for my dad in the off season. I majored in economics and I really thought I wanted to go to Wall Street. But I so loved, I so loved the coaching that I, I really decided if I could get a head coaching job by the time I was 22 or graduate upon graduation, I'd pursue a career in coaching. If not, I was going to try to get to Wall Street. Well, at 22, I became the youngest head coach in, in Delaware and um, uh, it was at Archmere Academy. In claim on Delaware, it's the same school, by the way, where President Biden went to. Mm. And mm. Um, uh, so uh, the uh, I, I couldn't. I was proud of my proud of my my career the first time around. Fast forward a bit. It's 1981 now, and I'm the defensive coordinator at Dartmouth, and we now have four children. And we were in the middle of a staff meeting, and the and the sheriff from town needed to see me 
And I thought there was a death in the family. Instead, he handed me divorce papers. So I couldn't live independently and take care of my wife and four children. So I got permission to move into a storage room by the football offices. I didn't mind that so much, but it, but it had no heat. And this is New Hampshire. Wait, and wait, let's, uh, let me slow you down for one second. Just to restate that, you're living in a, in a storage room. Loft. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Yep. So, so you're sleeping with no- amongst football equipments and pads and things like that. No, well, they were nice enough. We got that. Well, nobody did it for us. We cleaned all that stuff out because right. we became my home. Well, I, you know, the tough part was I could see my breath in the wintertime, which in New Hampshire lasts four or five months. Right. And, uh, but, and I lived there for two years. And then in January 1984, Miami upsets Nebraska for the national championship. And their secondary coach, uh, uh, Mike Archer, took the head job at LSU. Uh, the defensive coordinator, Tom Alvadotti, was going to get the uh, – was had a commitment from the Cleveland Browns, but it was the next year. So they asked me to come down, coach a secondary, and then back up Tom when he left for the pros. There could not have been a better job in my career, either career – than that one because mm-hmm. every one of those guys, Miami was a team to be in the eighties. Every one of those, every one of those guys got great jobs somewhere. And so I would have been going for the defense quarter in the Ivy League defense quarter for the national championship team. But, but then you may know, but some, some of your listeners may, uh, may not. And that is a uh, football coach's life is not an easy life for five months or so during the season. You don't get a day off. It's an 80 hour work week. It's seven days a week. And your entire career is dependent upon what you do on Saturdays. Now, I loved what I was doing. But back then, we didn't make much money. And I'm going to live in Carl Gable, Florida, where Miami is. But my kids are still going to live in New Hampshire. And I realized I couldn't afford to fly them back and forth. And then when the season's over, there's recruiting. And I really realized for several months a year, I would never see my kids. So the, the toughest criticism I've ever made was turning down the job because I didn't think I could do my job as a coach if I couldn't live up, live up to my responsibility as a father. So that also meant I have to get out of football. So uh, I always had that interest in Wall Street. I did everything I could to talk to as many people as I could. And uh, at the end of the day, Merrill Lynch gave me an opportunity in their NBA institutional training program. There were 26, 25 MBAs and one football coach. And everybody said, this football guy's never going to make it. But... That wasn't the case. And a few years later, most of those MBAs were working for me. Um, I could not be prouder of the career I've had, I had at Merrill Lynch. I wound up on, on both the I, – I, I, I rose to the executive committee in the institutional business, and then I was the first executive at the time to get uh, – to, 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 be, to, to be asked to go – I was asked to go to the institutional committee on, on the private client side. So I, so I had that opportunity. And then then uh, month – uh, 2000, the dot-com bubble burst. And many firms with real technology bent were really struggling going out of business. One of those was Ameritrade. They did a national search. I ultimately wound up taking the job and moved from Omaha to Nebraska. I'm sorry, I moved from New York City to Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were struggling. We were struggling. There were issues there. And uh, in 2008, I stepped down as CEO. The board asked me if I'd be chairman. Now, our, our, our progress over that year from a firm that was going out of business over the last five years, from a firm that was going out of business, our, our stockholders received a 500% return. Now, that outperformed every financial firm in the globe, every public traded financial firm in the world. That includes the financial crisis. So, as you can well imagine, we got it right. We didn't do anything wrong that everybody else was doing. And I'd never been in more demand in my life. 
uh, some astronomical type jobs in the business world on Wall Street. Uh, one thing after another kept coming my way, but that wasn't, I didn't step down to just take another job. Then I got a call from Yale and uh, it was a bunch of alumni at Yale. And they said the job may be open, football job might be open, would I be interested? I said, guys, I've not coached football for over 20 years. Yeah. And they said they knew that, but they felt they, they spent time on, on looking at the skill sets the college coach is supposed to have and believe I had those. And I probably had competitive advantage because there's only one problem. What's that? Well, in 135 years of college football, there's nothing like this has ever happened. Yeah. I said, okay. <laughs> so I thought about it for six months. I decided to go back and um, I began at Nebraska. I was there for two years. And, and uh, I spent a few months in the UFL because it was poorly managed. It was the third year of the UFL and they went out of business. That's why we didn't complete the season. And then the next year, uh, David DeCenzo, the president of Coastal at the time, offered me the opportunity to, to run Coastal Coastal football program. And I did. Uh, so that may have been a little long way, but that's like well, five decades of uh, yeah. that's my whole life story. It's uh, it's an inc- I mean, an incredible story, and I, I can't believe you were able to get all that out so quickly. Um, I mean, there's a there's a lot in there, uh, but I, I think the one the one of the through lines is you seem to have a, a an ability to have just incredible uh, mental toughness to kind of put yourself in probably uncomfortable positions at first and just and prove yourself. And is that something you feel like has been inside you your whole life? Is that something that a mentor sort of brought out in you? How, how did you tap into that? I think it's something that's been inside me uh, most of my life. But when I took that entrepreneur job, and I had never been more than 10, 20 miles outside of New York City, and the job was in Delaware. I thought Delaware at the time was the deep South. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but it, what is it that's making me move my family from the area that I, I know and love? And again, Wall Street's not going to be a bad career. Now. Hello. My, my, <laughs> my apologies. Let me just turn this off and I will edit this part out. So, uh, didn't realize that was still hooked up. Um, sorry about so that. I know it. Do you want me to start? Or just yeah, yeah. Question? So you okay. could uh, you could take it from yeah. um, why uh, you knew uh, why you would uh, move yeah. your family to from a place you know and love. Right. So um, and why would I move my family from a place I know and love? And again, potentially in a career path on Wall Street, which is a great potential career path to move and take over this high school football program. And uh, I said, it had to be more than, 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 than just the football. And I realized the reason why I wanted to do this was because I felt the impact I had when I was coaching a Fordham prep. Those guys were just a few years younger than I, and it really, really touched me. So I said, okay, so how do I get this across? How, how, do, how do I figure this out? And I said, this program, besides trying to win, is going to be about uh, becoming a man. And a man is not some tough macho guy. A man is somebody that stands on his own two feet, takes responsibility for themselves, treats others with dignity and respect, and lives with the consequences of their actions. Now, jump ahead to Coastal Carolina. Um, I've got 125 guys on the team. I've got another 25 coaches, interns, analysts, et cetera. They're 150 males. So we came up with the, the acronym uh, BAM. BAM is be a man. Now, 
for what that's worth. I institute, this is still, by the way, I still have my first playbook and it's in my office at mm. Coast Carolina. And these words are in that. That's from yeah. 1971. So uh, that became our, 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 our leadership philosophy. Uh, my entire first time around as a coach, my entire standard while I was at Merrill Lynch and for women and male exec, for everybody, and the entire standard at, uh, at, at, at Ameritrade and then at Coastal Carolina is the foundation upon which the current football program was built. So we did two things at Coastal that nobody else did. One was we had no rules. We didn't have one rule. We had a stand. It was bad. Everybody's supposed to live up to that standard. And the other one, we were the only program in the country. We actually gave up 30 minutes of practice a week. I'll repeat that. We gave up 30 minutes of practice a week. Nobody does that. The yeah. focus on stuff has nothing to do with football. A lot to do with BAM, though. Call that life after football. So we back up a little bit. Within BAM, there are three principles. Spiritual soundness, really knowing who you are. Got a courage, the guts to do what you really believe is right. And then love, which is a commitment to others. So spiritual sound, most of us really don't know who we are. We really, really don't. We're a composite of, you know, a composite of, we're a little different. React to our father, our mother, our brothers, our sisters, our girlfriends, our, our, our teammates, our teachers, our coaches. And the reality is when you really, really assess who you are, you really think about this clearly and you come back to it, you're going to make a lot of changes. That's not really true. That's not really true. So I think knowing who you are, genuinely knowing who you mm. are, knowing what your skill sets are, gives you peace of mind. Now, the peace of mind then allows you to make better decisions under stress. The better the decisions you make under stress, you increase the probability of being, uh, being successful, feeling good about yourself, as well as being happy. So the competitive advantages that I feel I've had in my lifetime was this BAM concept, take responsibility for yourself, along with spiritual science. Let's back up now to specifically answer your question. I think the background though was important. And that is, uh, I wouldn't do something that I, unless I had to, I had no choice. Yeah. I wouldn't do something that, that I didn't believe I could do. And I would constantly think about what are the skill sets required for success in a particular role? Do I have those skill sets? If I don't, do not do that. No matter how great it looks, do not do that. Yeah. And I had an opportunity to be a significant rock, rock, rock star, you know, like going to pay $75 million a year when I was 19 years old. And I turned down that job because I recognized I didn't have the skill set. I didn't have a good voice. More coming up from our guests. But first, a word from our sponsor. There are traditional jobs and untraditional callings. The first may offer stability, but for some folks, there's an itch that a nine to five just can't scratch. And when the pressure is on to find success on your chosen path, you need tech you can rely on. Even better, a singular mobile device that lets you get everything you need done from wherever you are. Introducing Samsung's Galaxy Z Fold 3 5G, a powerful foldable device that is opening up a new world of mobile productivity, giving you greater flexibility to get work done. The Galaxy Z Fold is not just a phone. Open it out and it becomes a tablet with an edge-to-edge 7.6-inch screen. Connect it wirelessly to a smart monitor or TV and it delivers a PC-like computing experience. You can even flex the Galaxy Z Fold 3 so it stands upright on its own while you video conference hands-free. In tablet mode, you can use the multi-active window to work simultaneously across three apps. With Galaxy Z Fold 3, you can carry less and do more. Learn more at samsung.com slash galaxy Z for work. 
That's samsung.com slash galaxy Z for work. And our next sponsor. Do you feel like you miss the boat with cryptocurrency? Well, cryptocurrency might feel like a secret or exclusive club, but Coinbase believes that everyone everywhere should be able to get in the door. So whether you've been trading for years or just getting started, Coinbase can help. Coinbase offers a trusted and easy-to-use platform to buy, sell, and spend cryptocurrency. They support the most popular digital currencies on the market and make them accessible to everyone. They offer portfolio management and protection, learning resources, and a mobile app so you can trade securely and monitor your crypto all in one place. Millions of people in over 100 companies trust Coinbase for their digital assets. So whether you're looking to diversify, just getting started, or searching for a better way to access crypto markets, start today with Coinbase. For a limited time, new users can get $10 in free Bitcoin when you sign up today at coinbase.com slash G-A-R-J. Sign up at coinbase.com slash G-A-R-J for $10 in free Bitcoin. This offer is for a limited time only, so be sure to sign up today. That's coinbase.com slash G-A-R-J. And we're back. So when I got married, I really had to think about it. And my father's telling me, don't go to college. Yeah. And it wasn't that I loved school. Uh, so uh, I went through this process then. That's the process I brought to Archman. Yeah. And I went through that process to decide whether or not I was going to make a decision to go to Archman. I did the same thing any other job I took along the way. Uh, and that was the process I really, truly went through when I was making the decision as whether or not I'm supposed to get involved with Miami or go to Wall Street again. It's a decision I made in any major point in my life. So so that was inside me for a while. I mean, I've learned a lot from all many, many people that, that, that I've worked with, worked for, interacted with. But um, the BAM responsibility, taking responsibility for yourself, there are no excuses. Mm-hmm. And Spiritual side, I knew the decisions I were making were the right decisions for me are two of the biggest reasons why any success that I may have had, those two pieces were my competitive advantages. And that and that's really those are really the reasons why 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 all those things happen. That's 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 awesome. That's that's amazing. And I wonder, you know, another thing that uh struck me is that, you know, whether it's uh coaching or your jobs. You know, uh, I mean, you're in the business world, you kind of going into places that were previously, you know, they were already running. There was something there that you were walking into. And I wonder how you, you know, it's one thing for you to believe these things and feel passionate, but obviously you got to get buy-in from the people who are working with you. You got to get buy-in from the players who are playing for you. And what, what's that process like for you? How do you get people on board? Okay, so now you're talking about specific leadership skills. So in most of the jobs that I had, I had already had a resume with regard to what's going on. So when, when my first executive level job at Merrill Lynch was I ran global fixed income institutional sales. Now, uh, how was I able to figure that one out? Well, as a producer, as a salesman myself, I became the number one producer in the world. So when I, when I, I, I took over responsibility for our sales force, there were things that I knew I knew were critical in terms of our doing something extraordinary as a, as a sales force. 
And so one of those things was back then, every individual producer was on a commission and had his own book. That was it. And what we changed when I was selling was we became a team. We got rid of many of the accounts and we could really focus on the accounts that, 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 that we had. And we had extraordinary results. Then in the reality, you don't, no matter, you don't have an individual book anymore. So now there's four people ha- having to, having to share what's mm-hmm. going on with regard to that. And uh, so, uh, but that was, I, I, I knew that worked and I knew that wasn't what people were used to. And the toughest thing is a leader, you change behavior, but that was the way we changed behavior. We said, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to get paid. And I lived up to that. Mm-hmm. But um, the guys wanted those jobs and they, they wound up, they were great jobs and they wound up delivering as far as that goes. When I got to municipal division over, we were failing and you needed a different direction. We did that. And then three years later, we, we were the most profitable per capita division in the world at Merrill Lynch. Uh, we did a great job in private client. When I, when I went to Ameritrade, Again, Meritrade's going out of business. So I said, Let, let's just focus. Let's really focus on the three things that really matter. The client, because with that client, you have a job, and um, our, our shareholders, because we've got to make some sort of profit. We've got to balance that. And then uh, the third thing is we've got to recognize is our associates, our employees, that deliver value to each of those constituents. Once you really understand that, then you start to focus on the things that matter. So if we start to have conversations in, the, in, our office, in our conference rooms because people think they're really smart, but it doesn't affect the client or the shareholder, we stop talking about it. It does not make any sense. Hmm. So we, we become a little bit more efficient that way, and therefore we spend less time in meetings. The second thing, though, we realize is that you have to understand what you're... I don't care what... This is, these are all consistent uh, guidelines regardless of the career path or the business. Uh, you've got to understand what your core competencies are so you can lever those into competitive advantages, so you can be a leader in the market niches you choose to participate in. Well, at Ameritrade, uh, we realized pretty quickly that we weren't a financial firm. We were a technology firm and a, finan- and a, uh, and a financial wrapper. Hmm. And what we were great at was transaction processing. In the Wall Street world, that's buying and selling stocks. So we were doing a million other things. We stopped doing all the other things. We took half the money to uh, try to cut our losses. And we took the rest of the money and we poured into specifically being able to get that done. Now, once you establish that, you make it very clear what the objectives are to the management team. I adjusted their compensation to, uh, uh, they got a large, much larger percentage of their compensation in stock because I wanted them to recognize that, you know, we got to get this done, uh, you know, for the overall firm. And if we're doing well as a firm, everybody's going to want it doing well. So again, I go back to, if I know how you're going to get paid, I know what, how you're going to behave. So, uh, that, that that's always that's always worked out. Now, yeah. when I began at Coastal Carolina, uh, they were having troubles as well, and I inherited seventy one guys from the team before that. Twenty five of the seventy one guys were having issues, were having problems, and I mean they were screwing up. And my first meeting, I remember telling the, the guys this. I explained the band philosophy, and I said, "But I recognize I didn't recruit you, and I'm not fooling around with this." So like going forward, this is something we're going to take very, very seriously. And I'm going to give you five months, meaning like to the end of the semester, that includes spring practice, uh, to talk to your position coach and tell him you're all in or you're not. If you're not all in, just come talk to me. I just like to know why. I'll respect that as long as you're living up to your responsibility. 
Then I had the 25 guys that were problems stand up. I called out the names and they stood up. And I said, guys, it's great. You got somebody to start all over with here. But I know you got a history of not doing what you need to do. So if you do screw up, I'm not going to give you second chances. Well, by the time that season ended, my first season, we had of those 25 guys, I threw 14 of them off the team and 11 of them would have been starters or were starters. Mm. So that really made everybody understand that this was something that was not just hard or not going to board us together. And we're not accepting excuses, we're moving on. So the trick, so the trick is in a leadership position, have the guts to do what you believe is right. But I define love then as the commitment to well-being of others. And it's not about making love, it's the power of love. So when your people recognize that you truly have, have their best interests at heart, but you've got to balance those with the best interests of the university or the company or the shareholders, whatever it might be, uh, uh, then they're going to give it everything they've got. They're going to believe in you. They're going to follow you. They're going to do what you need them to do. And you got to make tough decisions also as a leader. If the people are not doing that, you, you either, you got to evaluate what's the problem. And if you can't get that problem adjusted, and again, you're not allowing excuses, then you got to make a tough decision with regard to your player, with regard yeah. to your executive, with regard to your employee. Well, I was going to, uh, so I was going to ask you that, you know, sometimes there's someone who might be doing amazing things on the field, uh, but they're, you know, they're poison in the locker room or, you know, in business, someone who is, you know, making a lot of money, but, you know, is just a, a, a toxic person. Um, uh, th- those are tough decisions to make sometimes when there's there's a there's a big upside to the, have, keeping this person. Uh, how do you approach situations like that? So why don't we use competitive athletics as an example? You know, there are individual stars. College kid wants to get drafted. Now with his NIL thing, you know, they want to be able to make some money on the side. Uh, if you get to the pros, certainly you're expected to make some money. And you, can, you think you're going to make some money based on your stats. Well, if your stats are really good and your team is not, that's going to be an issue. That's going to be a problem. Now, if your stats are really good and your team's not, but you're also a leader and you're at least a good guy, at least you're respectful. Again, man, always treat others with dignity and respect. That will cover locker room behavior. So if you're not doing what you need to do in the locker room or you're not doing what you need to do as an executive, then what you try to do is you just, can you design a job for that person where they don't interact necessarily with the team or the rest of the organization that much, but they're really brilliant at what they do. So can you mm. keep them over here yeah. and allow them to do what they do as long as they have, an, uh, have, have a negative impact? That would be the first choice. The second choice would be bring them in with the team or the executive management team or the players, whoever it might be. And I think you have a, a come to Jesus type meeting. It's kind of like, like, this is what's going on. This is a problem. Now, the team's got to be courageous enough, and the other executive's got to be courageous enough to be able to speak up. And this is going to be a closed-door meeting and say, no, your behavior in terms of locker room, it turns us off. The linemen don't want to block for you. Uh, the technology group doesn't want to support you. Now, I'm exaggerating when I say something like that. Yeah, yeah. But usually, if the guys get – remember, in the business world or in the athletic world, my entire life is built on this BAM concept. So – you got to get that. You got to get that. So again, you stand on your own two feet. You take responsibility for yourself. You treat us with dignity and respect. That's inviolate. So if you agree to be part of the organization or the program, and I clearly explained this in the beginning. Now, in the business world, I wasn't using the term ban, 
but I was using the same, take responsibility for yourself, treat others with dignity and respect. And by the way, that you got to recognize you're going to live with the consequences of your actions. So for me, over my career path, that became the single fundamental uh, 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 foundation upon which we built everything. And when it didn't work, you get so much of a bond by everybody coming together and taking pride in the, the success of the stock or the success of where we stand in the market or w- what we're going to do as a team from a national perspective. Uh, it works out pretty well. And that may mean you have to make a tough decision on a person. That's where you begin with. You begin with, can the person do what they do in a position where it doesn't impact everybody else? That's probably not true of a team, a, an athletic team. But mm-hmm. you can do that in the business world. If you can't do that in the business world, or if you can't do that in a team, then is it worth to have like an intervention, in effect, close to an intervention? Now, of course, I'm going to have my conversation with him as well, or her as well. But um, that would be the way that would be the way I approach it. But at the end of the day, you're not living up to what you're committed to do. You're not taking responsibility for yourself. You're working on your own, and you're uh, you're not treating others with dignity and respect. So if you're screwing around in a locker room, or you're creating uh, you're not working the way you should be with others as an as as in executive management, um, then you're violating that. Then you got to recognize the consequence of this could very well be you, you'd be dismissed. Yeah. You know, we've talked so much about what you've uh, accomplished up to this point, and I'm wondering, looking ahead, uh, you know, how you look for new opportunities? Do you look for things to come your way? Uh, do you have a plan in your head for what you'd like to do next? Uh, you know, how do you approach the future? Well, I think, I, you know, I've not, every now and again, I do think it happens for everybody where something just happens to come their way. For example, that call I got from Yale about going back to football. I was not thinking about going back to football, uh, but that certainly gave me a lot of things to think about for the next few months. Most of the time, what I've done and most of the time, what uh, uh, what I recommend to others to do is, is that, you should have some sort of a plan. And I think in terms of um, at this point in my age, but I felt this, frankly, you know, 10, 10 15 years ago, uh, I, it's important to be do, for me to be working with people that I enjoy working with. And it's important for me to enjoy what I'm doing. Uh, I've had, I worked hard, I've been working hard since 10 years old. And, you know, to do something I don't enjoy doing, it doesn't make any sense to me. Work with people that I don't enjoy being with doesn't make any sense to me. So I think in general, you think about you think about what you may want to do. You, you do that spiritual science exercise. Does this work for me? Do I have the skill sets? What are you passionate about? And if that's what you want to do, you start to work toward that. Doesn't mean you quit your job. Doesn't mean you go off to an island. But you start to work toward that. So uh, when I stepped down from football a couple of years ago, uh, I still was responsible for the succession of the program. And... Um, and, and, and being executive director of the program, having responsibility for our program is something that I take very, very seriously. I do enjoy it. I love working with my staff. Uh, with Jamie Chavos is the coach now. I was the one that originally hired him. I was the one that originally uh, also so, uh, had him succeed me. I have the staff with guys that I had hired. I have a lot of respect for the ones I did and didn't. So I'm enjoying that. A lot mm. of the players, of the teams they have, the five years we have, you no, know, four of the years I, I recruited, three of the years I coached. So I'm enjoying doing that. I take that very responsibility. Now, part of that joy is how, how well the program's going. That's that. We hired a new president at Coastal Effective January, and I spent a lot of time 
uh, I, I spent a lot of time with him before he took the job. I think the world of the man, his name is Michael Benson, and I'm enjoying being executive advisor to the president. Now, from a, from, a, from a markets perspective, I enjoy managing my own money, so I'm paying much more attention to that than I would have in the past. And uh, I am chair of a small asset management company, and I'm, uh, I'm chair also of a, of a small wealth management company. And again, I'm not working those things very, very hard, but I am keeping an eye on, I am available, and those are things that I enjoy doing. So what mm-hmm. else do I enjoy doing? I right. gave up golf went back to football. So I was a good 13 with money at 13. Now I probably shoot 125. Right. And uh, going back to that, I I try to spend three times a week where I'm just working on chipping irons. That's it. I'm still not ready to go on, (laughs) go on a real course. I enjoy taking my care, take care of myself physically. So again, I'm doing that. Yeah. Uh, I love the time with my family or loved ones are really close friends. Again, I'm doing that. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, we had, uh, I mentioned that first team that I coached as a head coach in Delaware, Archmere. I had seven of those players in the seventies visited the other day. And uh, two weeks, a week before that, the second high school I went to before I broke into college was Pencrest high school in media, Pennsylvania. And I had uh, 17 of them that were there at the game. So, so these are people that I've stayed in touch with over the years mm. and what they pass, whether the past players or teammates or classmates, uh, uh, colleagues, um, they're the things, they're the things at least that I'm trying to do. And, um, I'm doing them because they intellectually stimulate me. They emotionally stimulate me. I'm involved with people that I want to be involved with. And hopefully I can help a little bit on the perimeter. That's, that's awesome. I love that. Um, well, we, I've, I've taken a lot of your time today and I appreciate it. And I wonder just, you know, one more thing, looking back at what you, the, the various things that you've accomplished, is there is there anything that you've done or experienced in your professional career that gives you just an incredible amount of pride? Is there one thing that really, you've done so many things, but is there one thing that really stands out to you as something you look back on and just, you know, it just fills your heart with pride? The thing that fills my heart with pride the most is a little bit of an intangible, but uh, I know I haven't had a great impact on everybody I have been interacted with. But I also know that I've had, I think, a significant impact on many, many, many of the people that I've been interacted with, mm. whether in the business world, whether in the world of sports or, or my personal life. Uh, those relationships, that feeling from me that, that, that I've had a positive impact on somebody else is like, gives me an incredible sense of satisfaction. Credible sense of satisfaction. Now, there are things I'm certainly proud of that I've accomplished in the business world, things I've accomplished as a coach that I'm certainly proud of. But that's the one thing I think that has, that's what moved me to coaching. And that's, that, that's, that's kind of, uh, that's, 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 for me, that's really the foundation of how I live and think. So the impact that I've had on others is what touches me by far the most. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Well, you, you certainly have, uh, beyond the, the the people you've coached, obviously the fans who have, uh, you know, enjoyed uh, the fruits of your labor. I'm um, sure. Uh, thank you. And are glad that you're still part of this program. And um, so, yeah, I just wanted to say thanks again f- for sharing your thoughts and your time today. Uh, it's, it's been amazing hearing your story and we can't wait to see uh, what you're up to next. I very much appreciate Dan, uh, that, Dan. Thank you for having me on. 
All right, great. All right, Joe Moglia, great talking to you. Talk again soon, I hope. Take care, Dan. Thank you. All right, thanks. That's our episode, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. Get a Real Job comes out every Tuesday. So be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you harvest your favorite podcasts. Leave us a review. Give us a share. Come and beg people. Go to entrepreneur.com for new episodes of this and to listen to our other great podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.